0: Hello and welcome to the RISE podcast series, where we aim to explore the stories behind education research and practice as part of the multi-country Research on Improving Systems of Education Endeavour, funded by UK Aid, Australian Aid, and the Bill and
1: Melinda Gates Foundation. Hello, and welcome to the RISE podcast. I am Julius Atahura, a research fellow at RISE. Today, I'm speaking to Anustup Nayak. Anustoop is the Project Director for Classroom Instruction and Practice at Central Square Foundation, which is an organization working to bring down learning poverty in India through a radical prioritization of early learning. In this episode, we talk about Anustoop's story, linking his educational path and career. We delve into the basic education context in India and examine why foundational literacy and numeracy, commonly abbreviated as FLN, is first becoming a key driver of the learning agenda in India. We take a deep dive into the work of Central Square Foundation and peer into what goes on inside primary school classrooms in India. We touch on Anustoop's involvement with some of the work strands that rise, their relevance to his practice, and his ideas about future directions. Anustoop shares his dual view of India's unique position in efforts toward understanding and solving the global learning crisis. Anustop's story and views are super inspirational. It's my sincere hope that you, too, will find this episode as insightful. Anustop, thank you for making time for us, and welcome to the RISE podcast.
0: Thank you, Julius. It's a great pleasure to be on this show, and thank you for making time for me.
1: Terrific. Let's start with your story, and more specifically, your education and career path. Where does it all begin? and how does your education journey connect with your career trajectory this far?
0: Very well, uh, I have to go back many years and I've never thought about it in this way. I was born and raised on the eastern coast of India in a small state called Odisha. Both my parents were government servants and uh, and they made an early decision that education was a priority. So when I think of my journey, I must uh, thank my parents for Uh, investing in me early on, but uh, at another level, I think my parents also did lots of educational experiments on on me as now I think about it. They first put me in a a school that was uh, more of a free progress, progressive school, which was run by the disciples of Sri Aurobindo, who was an educational philosopher in India, and they believed that children should have more freedom while learning. So it was a lot more unstructured compared to some of the other schools. So that was, uh, I would argue, a very brave decision on their part. That was followed by homeschooling when we moved to Africa for a couple of years in the 80s. And I was uh, out of school, but uh, I was learning at, at home. And then when I came back to India, I studied again in a government school which uh, was uh, really struggling in some ways uh, in terms of infrastructure and i wanted uh, my parents wanted me to experience uh, the real india of how most children go to school so looking back i think those kinds of educational experiences uh, shaped me um, as as a child and as i was growing up uh, it became very clear to me that i had to do something beyond just educating myself, getting a good job, which was a priority. And uh, like most young people in the 90s, I went to study engineering, which was kind of a preferred option in India. But two years down that road, I found out I was never going to make a very good engineer. So I thought maybe try my hand at social sciences. So I moved to the US and got a scholarship to study public policy at Georgia Tech. Um, I tried to get a job in the nonprofit sector and couldn't get in. And that was the time of the technology boom in the late 90s and the early 2000s. So I worked in the corporate sector in America. But in two, three years, I was uh, craving for a change because I was missing uh, some kind of meaningful work in in the corporate world. I wasn't really sure I was making a difference in any other person's life other than mine. So I thought of doing something else, and I decided to go back to school again to study education. And I was uh, at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And that's where I think my life took an interesting turn. Uh, Three, four things happened to me. One was that I came to terms with my own ignorance, in spite of the fact that I had a lot of good education and degrees and credentials behind me. became very clear to me that a lot of my early education was very fragile in terms of understanding. I remember taking a class with Professor Eleanor Duckworth, who was a student of Piaget and, and a very famous professor at Harvard, and she gave us this simple problem. I remember it still. She said, four of you are going to the movies and sitting right next to each other. What are all the possible ways in which you could all sit together? And I, being trained in the Indian education system, having learned math all my life, uh, quickly I calculated the formula 4 factorial and, and the answer 24 uh, came to my head. And, and I said, you know, it's, it's 24 because it's 4 factorial. But then she asked me, Anastup, can you sh- show me how this happens? She gave me a bunch of beads And I realized I actually didn't understand what what I had just learned as a formula. And that hit me really hard. And I was thinking at that point of time that even though I came from a, I wouldn't say a very privileged background, but I was still privileged in the form of education I had got. And I was still wrote memorizing most of the things that I had supposed to be uh mastering in, in in school and if that was the case for me then millions of other children are probably missing out on on good educational opportunities just because of the kind of education system we had it was around the same time that i ran into a fellow student named ashish rajpal who also had come from india and had led a successful corporate background in europe and we ran into each other as, as as fellow classmates at the Graduate School of Education. And he had a very inspiring dream to go back to India and set up something in the field of elementary education. And I followed him back to India and over the next couple of decades uh, worked with him and, and a bunch of other colleagues who joined us later to build an organization called Exceed Education, whose mission was to improve the quality of elementary school education. And uh, for the first five or six years, we really struggled like any startup would. And uh, we struggled not just financially, but also we struggled in terms of finding out what was the right model to improve education. We tried many things like setting up, uh, uh, you know, schools for, for people who are setting up you know, new institutions. We tried lots of teacher training. But after delivering hundreds and hundreds of hours of teacher training in all kinds of schools, rich schools, private schools, poor schools, affordable private schools and government schools, we came to the conclusion that training alone wasn't really changing much in the classroom. Teachers went back to the same old practices that they started. That was the time my colleagues started teaching in the classroom. And uh, it became very clear that unless a teacher has clear step-by-step instructions on how to teach better, uh, and those instructions are backed by uh, evidence-based practices, uh, you won't expect change in the classroom. So that's how the idea of the EXCEED program was born, which is now called structured pedagogy, but we had kind of stumbled onto this by creating our own lesson plans and materials for students. And over the next eight or 10 years, we took this program to scale to about 2,000-odd affordable private schools in India. We began to see remarkable changes in learning of students and also in the capacity of, of teachers. And I think my own journey was defined by really helping teachers succeed in the classroom every day. Oftentimes in education, teachers are really ridiculed, in, in, especially in our country, as being underskilled or undermotivated or, or just people who really are not very competent. Uh, but if we start treating teachers as professionals and provide them with the right tools, the right training, they can succeed in the classroom every day. And that was what the Exceed journey taught me. By the time I reached uh, kind of my early forties, it also became clear to me that uh, the organization which I was part of has has grown beyond me, and I was ready for a second innings. And that's when I took a sabbatical, thought about what else is happening in India, and I started thinking hard about the public education system in India. Uh, India has a million plus uh, government-run schools, um, which educates most of our children especially coming from from poverty ridden backgrounds and when it comes to the learning outcomes they are incredibly poor and uh, lots of people uh, very very smart people have been working on this problem for many many years and yet we hadn't seen change and uh, that's when i uh, you know, decided to work for Central Square Foundation. I had known of their work for a very long time through their founder, Ashish Dhawan, who uh, was uh, a very famous philanthropist and started off as a venture capitalist and then entered philanthropy. And I had known him since my entrepreneurial days. And they were working with the public education system as as a partner and working on systems reform. So the last three years of my journey has really been about working with the public education system with Central Square Foundation. Uh, so that's a little bit about my journey so far in education.
1: Thank you. Very, very exciting journey, Anustop. Uh, going to Africa, back to India, moving to the US, and then this challenge at Harvard, uh, the professor who challenged you, and then you discovered how much you were learning, but not probably individually taking it as your own benefit. So, I mean, it's like many of us, we always get challenged in life. Like this challenge that came back to you to make real meaning of what you are learning and translating that, this is the real thing that we, we are focusing on when we say learning should make meaning to the children. Children should not just be in class to uh, show that they have performed or they have passed a test. And yet, in reality, they cannot translate this into their real lives. So really exciting to hear that. But also, your transition from, uh, from uh, the corporate world into uh, going back to India and then moving into the public sector, uh, that's really exciting to hear. So thank you so much. So let's uh, progress a bit and move on, uh, zero in on the basic education context in India especially on foundational learning. So from my personal experience uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa, my understanding of that setting is that our work is cut out to make foundational learning meaningful for every child as a springboard for their educational and overall life success. It's a gigantic task. What is your understanding of the current context in India? And what makes you hopeful? about the possibility of uh, achieving uh, FLN proficiency for every child in India, say, in the next four to five years?
0: Oh, thank you for that question. There are many challenges that we face. Uh, Of course, it will take ages to describe these challenges, but I'll pick the top three or four, which I think are very essential to, to solve in the short run. One important thing to know about the Indian education system is the sheer size and complexity of the system. India has almost quarter of a billion children going to school. Uh, The states of India are the size of other countries. For example, Uttar Pradesh, which is India's largest state, is almost the size of Brazil as a country. You can imagine, therefore, the complexity of Making shifts in the system uh, are are very very big, and there is no one centralized authority uh, that can push all the changes because India at the end is a federal system, so every state takes responsibility for the operations of its own education system. so that's the first thing I want to talk about the Indian education system. The second is the fact that while in the last 20 to 30 years, we've made remarkable progress in terms of children coming into school, we are still very, very far behind when it comes to learning outcomes. Studies like ASAR and other kinds of studies, including the government's own studies, show that almost 50% of Indian children, especially by the time they, they finish the early grades, are unable to attend the foundational literacy or numeracy skills. And therefore, what tends to happen is that when they get into middle school, uh, they fall further and further behind because uh, their learning trajectories are flat. Uh, So they might have, let's say, take, take, take reading for example. If they haven't learned to read by grade three or grade four, then they cannot read to learn. Uh, So, something like uh, reading a social studies textbook or a a science textbook becomes difficult for them. The second is that curriculum itself is quite complex and ambitious and the uh, methodology of teaching, which is often not spoken about that much in, in global circles, is largely road, chalk and talk, one way transmission of knowledge to children and often not informed by what works in terms of evidence of how to get children learning better and learning faster. So those are some of the big challenges that that we face as as a country. The second aspect of solving this challenge relates to the capacity of the state. The Indian state uh, often has been referred to people like Land Pritchard as being a flailing state, that it is a state which is kind of quite mixed in its capacity to respond to the demands being placed on it on one hand it does certain things very well so for example india runs one of the largest uh, elections in the in the world right it, the indian um, democracy in terms of the sheer uh, size of its uh, ability to to marshal people into an election every five years or so and do it reasonably well is is often lauded across the world. On the other hand, if you look at the delivery of basic services like healthcare or education, we often struggle because uh, our state is not always equipped to uh, have the right skills, have the right motivation, the political will, uh, the right data systems, all of that coming together. Uh, so that we can deliver well. And that's true about the school education system. So those are some of the challenges. And uh, the other challenge relates to the capacity specifically of our teachers. Teachers come into the classroom relatively underprepared in terms of both pre-service training, which is largely theoretical in nature, and the in-service training, which is almost sporadic and often disconnected from classroom practice and the classroom materials, so on and so forth. So. If you take all of this, uh, one would almost run away, scared from attempting to to improve this system. But what keeps us going? I think largely uh, there are many, many good things happening in India. One is there is enormous interest now in improving education in India at all levels, whether you look at the national education policy which has been uh, proposed the national curriculum framework which is uh, talking uh, a language which is derived from very very strong principles of of good literacy and numeracy so on paper we have a really good policy document that sets the stage for uh, for good instruction in the classroom uh, we have the Nippon Bharat Mission, which is a national mission to focus on foundational literacy and numeracy, which was launched with much fanfare uh, and which promises that by uh, next two to three years of, of its uh, execution, we would want to get all children in India uh, equipped with the basic uh, literacy and numeracy skills. And we have even set numerical targets for something like oral reading fluency for an entire country. And that gives us great hope because when the political and administrative system is energized at the top, it is more likely that the entire system would, would move in the right direction. The second thing that is that keeps me extremely hopeful is the fact that parents in India uh, care about education in, in in general. They value education as as a factor of social mobility. Uh, so that's 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 always hopeful. So when I talk to parents uh, in every home uh, that I visit, I see that they have aspirations for their children to better in school. And the third thing which gives me a lot of hope is the work that many like-minded organizations are doing to improve foundational literacy, working together under a common umbrella, I can see that happen in our ecosystem with CSF, uh, Central Square Foundation, which I work for, working very closely with the government, working very closely with technical support organizations like Language and Learning Foundation, Room to Read, Madhi Foundation, Vikramshila, these are all like-minded organizations working together. Others like Pratham and uh, Akshara, many other organizations are doing great work. So all of these organizations working together also creates a supply side push of good quality Uh, learning programs, many of which have been shown to have uh, great evidence at some degree of scale. So all of this makes me really hopeful that in the next two to three years, we will make progress on our goals.
1: Thank you. Uh, Listening to you talk about the challenges uh, in India, Obviously, as someone coming from the global south, I can relate with many of those challenges. Uh, and the issue of teachers is really critical. This uh, pre-service training that they get and very little practice in the classroom. When they get into the real classroom, it's like they are thrown into the deep side of things and they, they have to figure it out on their own. So they really need a lot of support. And this really connects to your work at uh, Central Square Foundation which I think we are moving into uh, next. So exciting also to hear about the Nippon Bharat Mission uh, in India and uh, how the politics is working to really put foundational learning at the center of all learning uh, to make sure children get strong foundations from the very beginning for their learning to make meaning. We'll now take a deep dive into CSF's work what it means for improving education systems and your central focus on what goes on inside the classroom. Also the fact that CSF works heavily through coalitions, uh, technical partners and government. Can you explain CSF's work in India and how does CSF contribute to improving what goes on inside the classrooms and what that means for the education system in India?
0: Our work starts on innovation. It goes on to policy, then to practice. And our final objective is to ensure that there is change at scale in terms of working on quality school education for children. And especially, our focus is on system-led reform. There have been many attempts in the past to transform Indian education systems. And we and our coalitions are not the first ones to do it, and hopefully not the last. But one of the things we have realized is that working through the system to enable its capacity, to enable its ability to deliver on its promises is very, very critical. Rather than working as an external agency only, or running pilots, or running experiments that will not lead to scale, that's really our focus. When we look at our impact areas, we work on three critical areas. One is, of course, foundational literacy and numeracy. But we also work very closely with the government on early childhood education, which is a key priority for our country because many children aren't coming in with the right kind of school readiness. We also work on education technology because we believe that learning at home, especially with low-cost devices and contextualized ed tech solutions can have a big impact on children's learning. And it's a great complement to what happens in in school. We work with 12 Indian state governments. We also work with the national government. And in one way or the other, almost 70% of all children studying in government schools in primary grades across the country are somehow affected and impacted by our programs that we support. Let me come a little bit into the how of our work. When we think of our work, we think of it almost like a house with four pillars in it. And the four pillars being ensuring that we set clear goals and communication for the system. There's a structured pedagogy approach that ensures good quality teaching and learning in the classroom. There is capacity building for the whole system. And there is a focus on governance and data. And all of these working together Is how CSF and its coalitions are are driving change efforts. And this looks different when it hits the ground. There is a setup phase that we have experienced. I think that phase lasted from 2021 to about the current time period when we were trying to set up the states for FLN reform. And in that there were four or five things we were trying to do. One is to influence the reform decisions. Because when the states make definitive decisions on the kind of learning outcomes that they want to target, the kind of curriculum materials that they want to create, they unlock budgets for that. Then it sets the ball in motion on an irreversible path. The second is to design the reform inputs with the state. And there are two kinds of design inputs. One is governance inputs, and the other is academic inputs. The academic inputs are largely around structured pedagogy, which ensures that there are clearly defined learning outcomes. There are detailed step-by-step lesson plans and teacher guides made available to teachers. And they are informed by quality instructional design uh around balanced literacy approach or the concrete pictorial approach in numeracy and there is also very clear definition of what formative and summative assessment looks like so that struggling learners are identified early on and also continuously through their journey on the governance side there are incredible challenges to be overcome which include ensuring that there is adequate availability of of mentors their own time is focused on teaching and learning support as opposed to doing administrative work. There is a lot of work going on to improve the time on task of, of teachers and unburdening them from other responsibilities that lead them away from teaching and learning. And there is a lot of focus on setting up the state to actually hold the entire system accountable. Then. The rollout of the monitoring system is very, very critical. So what we have been working with these states uh, on on all kinds of data uh, collection, data reliability, and data-driven decision-making. So there are uh, key performance indicators that we have set up with with the state, for example, what percentage of teachers are using teacher guides, if they are using teacher guides, what practices they're actually following, what is the number of visits that the mentors are making, and are those visits actually driven by protocol, so on and so forth, and then using this data to then inform the state's administrative decisions. And then we are trying to build uh, a high degree of salience in the political and bureaucratic circles, because unless the the people at the very top continue to believe that this kind of investment is going to yield returns. Uh, they're not going to keep moving the wheels and, and that's very, very important. And then now we are getting into a phase where we want to institutionalize this FLN system reforms. So, the first thing we're trying to do is to build district capability, because while the state uh, is the working uh, you know unit for all kinds of decision making, but the actual implementing unit is the district. And that's why we want to ensure that there is trickle down effect to individual districts to build their capacity. So we are helping districts uh, build their capacity to execute on, on both administrative and academic fronts. We're also trying to influence the community-led demand for FLN, and that's aspirational because getting parents, especially parents uh, who come from underprivileged backgrounds to understand what their children are learning, support them at home, demand better from the school, all of that would ensure that there's a pull effect apart from the push that they're doing. And the big focus is on improving data quality, and then ensuring that as we are going through this, we've also made mistakes and 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 learned and iterating the design. And in summary, if I were to give ourselves a kind of a progress report uh, on, on, on the work done so far, what has really worked well is I think there is very strong political and bureaucratic buy-in in, in all the states that we are working in. Um, both at the central level, there is the Nipun bharat Mission, there is the NEP, the National Education Policy, and and in large number of states, they're taking it really seriously. The other thing which makes me personally very, very excited is that when we go into the classrooms, there is acceptance and adoption of structured pedagogy and the balanced literacy and numeracy approaches. Because one of the big risks in all of these reforms is the kind of pushback one gets uh, around adoption of new practices so when we go into classrooms at least you know 40% of the teachers are using the teacher guides they are beginning to uh, understand the kind of practices that those teacher guides and assessments have and there is intent and design for changing the teacher professional development. There's still miles to, to go in terms of improvement in both the capacity building of teachers, but I think there is a strong attempt to uh, to fix that process. There's also a strong focus on assessments and monitoring, and uh, there is data being collected on students' learning outcomes. The mentors are are certainly visiting the schools a little bit more. And needless to say, all of this is the result of this collaborative coalition approach. Because on one hand, you have partners bringing in technical expertise from different organisations, And on the other hand, we have government counterparts who are actively working uh, to institutionalize this reform. So this seems to be working, but there's a host of things we need to problem solved for in the way ahead. And and there are many such things. But if I had to pick four or five areas, one is we have to constantly guard against what we call internally as declaring victory too soon. One of the ways in which India works is that everybody is catalyzed into action when we are working on this mission mode. Uh, So everybody is talking about FLN reforms right now. But the fear is that uh, people would want to uh, declare that most children have achieved these competencies, would want to make make the system look good. And therefore, we may not get uh, a real bearing on on the truth of where we are on this journey. So we have to constantly guard against that. The second thing, which is a big challenge in the Indian context is that the political and the administrative layer, which currently is sympathetic uh, to these reforms, has taken many brave decisions, uh, constantly gets churned through the process of elections and transfers. And how do we ensure that when uh, individual officers or individual political leaders are moving on, their successors are taking the reforms equally seriously? And the real shift which we have to do is really behavior change and practice change in the classroom by teachers. So one of the challenges we see is that when you have a support system for teachers, there may be initial adoption in terms of a compliance-driven behavior. People may do something because they're being told to do it, or their materials or their check boxes they have to fill. But is it actually leading to practice change? Are children really learning? Are teachers really transferring the, the gradual release of responsibility uh, to the children in terms of, of, of the learning work? Unless that happens, it remains a ritualistic uh, inf- you know, kind of an implementation. And the last is to build demand from parents and community, because that is the hardest uh, one to crack. Because uh, parents are, of course, busy. They are challenged in their own ways, trying to eke out a living. And on top of that, uh, how do they provide support and demand better from schools? That, those are the kinds of things we are struggling with. And we have, we have a lot of work to do in the next
1: two to three years. It's a lot, it's a lot, stop. Yeah, so think about your collaborative uh, approach. Really exciting to see that several players in the sector coming together and uh, agreeing to look at this challenge of foundational learning and looking at it together as, as a group or a coalition, including government, that that cannot be easy, how to get all these different actors to look at the problem in the same way and agree on a similar way to approach it i find that really so powerful and also i think that really helps a lot to drive the what actually happens in the classroom in terms of the teachers my experience is that uh, you find that teachers really want to see uh this coherence of different players all speaking with the same voice and pointing the same direction. So they they don't feel like they have to comply with what CSF is thinking, but maybe what CSF is bringing on the table does not really match properly with what the government is asking. So this issue of not pulling teachers in different directions can be achieved big time once all actors are really pulling in the same direction. But you also touch on the community and parents. That's another critical one that I really feel very strongly about. And I think parents and communities have a very important role to play, but how to get that to be actualized is something that I think is a space where we still need to get a lot of insight on how that can be done in the best way to benefit children's learning. Yeah, so I think let's move on. Uh, As we draw towards the end of this podcast, we talk a bit about your connections with RISE. so. CSF is one of three organizations that have, since early this year, assumed the role of leading the RISE community of practice, uh, which is a group of organizations, individuals, that are working to create systemic change to raise children's learning levels globally. Also, CSF has recently been involved in piloting the RISE Education Systems Diagnostic Tool. And at a personal level for you, you're quite well-versed with uh, various strands of RISE work, in India and elsewhere. So from where you stand, what does success look like for, for example, for the RISE Committee of Practice over the next two years as you are a member of this community and uh, of the steering committee? And what key insights have you picked from raise work and what do they mean for your own practice?
0: Well, that's a very important, but a very difficult question and uh, a lot of people far wiser than me should weigh on this. But when I think of RISE, I really think of RISE as a real watering hole for like-minded thinkers, doers, practitioners who can come together and really make change happen at a much larger scale and really push the boundaries of both thinking and doing in the in the domain. So, whenever I have listened to to different experts at RISE, attended RISE uh, events, and especially the community of practice, which I'm personally very close to, and, and working with people such as yourself and, and Michelle and others, I have learned a lot personally. Because when I came into... Uh, this domain three years ago, I was uh, really a newbie in, in the whole foundational learning space. And, and there is uh, lots of things I, I have learned from from RISE. I mean, I can take a few examples. So for example, if you look at Lewis Crouch's work, and Lewis advises uh, CSIF, he's on, also on our board, uh, you know, think of an article like uh, the one he wrote on how to rapidly improve learning outcomes at the system level. That's the kind of study which which encapsulates a lot of latent knowledge in the sector and says here's the three or four critical levers of making change happen at scale that there needs to be some kind of a why an initial motivation for change and you need to have some kind of what which are the design features and the how of the implementation And, and if you correlate it to what i just shared in terms of csf strategy it wouldn't surprise you that many of these elements are, are drawn from the work um, of, the, of the RISE uh, program uh, leaders. Right? So, so in, in, in many ways, RISE has been an important inspiration for the work we do at Central Square Foundation. And, and it's a place to go back. I think when I think about RISE uh, as an institution, as a specific institution, but more importantly, the research community in general, I think I have a wish list as well. I think the first challenge we are facing, and and we discussed about it last year at the RISE conference uh, quite a bit, is how do we become more and more relevant to the practitioners and the policymakers? While we have generated a lot of evidence, while we have created an interesting body of work on on what works and what doesn't work, I think we need to do a lot more to get on the radar of policymakers and implementers and ensure that they digest all of this information. Um, And we aren't really speaking in an echo chamber of of experts who largely agree with each other in principles. Maybe there may be some uh, differences in methodology or or ways of looking at the world. But largely, you have a like-minded group of people. But how can we bring in people? Who are the people who are making decisions? If you you remember a study that was done by uh, Center for Global Development, where they quizzed a lot of mid-level policymakers on their understanding of FLN, Mm You, you see the kind of differences that people have uh, in terms of the, the people at the front lines who are making change happen on, on education. So if you are, the, the work that um, you and, and Michelle and others have done on the coherence of, of, of curriculum uh, and, and, and instruction and assessment, that's a very important body of work, Julius. And I personally benefited a lot from that work. But how can we take that to the director of uh, the, the curriculum bodies in my country and 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 get them to think differently about curriculum instruction i think that's a, that's that's the real problem we're facing the second problem is a slightly more methodological in in nature uh, which is where i think my bigger wish is in terms of the kind of studies that we need to see more and more of i think we've seen a lot of studies that show that some programs work and other programs don't that you know, largely stop at the impact of those programs. But, but I think we need to push the boundaries on really opening the black box of what happens inside the classroom. Uh, if you remember, there was an interesting paper by last year uh, by Johan Dehagre and others uh, on, on, on studying teachers in Vietnam. Where they actually videotaped the practices of teachers and understood what were some of those practices that were really high leverage in terms of moving classroom outcomes. We need more studies like that which really open that black box. And that means that we got to collaborate much more across disciplines, um, education specialists and economists and behavior change experts all coming together and trying to focus on all aspects Uh, of a a problem. I think we need to see that kind of research more and more coming out of the RISE program, which really looks at teacher practices. uh, And I have been obsessed with teaching as a verb, not just teachers as a noun, but what is the work of teaching? What kind of decisions do do teachers make uh, on a daily basis inside the classroom? What's the difference between the transacted curriculum and the intended curriculum? What is the level of student engagement in the classroom and why that is so. So I think these are questions that keep me up at night. And I don't find enough uh, evidence to guide me on, on a daily basis. So that is my real wish for, for RISE is, one, a become more relevant to policymakers and implementers and then guide them in a more pragmatic manner. And the second is to really open up the black box of what happens in a classroom and and really uh, share the narrative of the connections between teaching and learning as
1: as verbs thank you that's really great uh you're throwing a challenge back at uh, uh rise and uh, whatever successor programs follow on from rise to take all this wisdom to actually where this wisdom needs to be where the rubber meets the road in the classroom for the children, for the teachers, for the people making those very important decisions that really impact children's learning. Uh, and stop. we now move into the very final part of the podcast. And uh, we have a tradition for this podcast. Every episode, this question is asked. So what is one thing you wish other people knew about the education system in India or about education systems broadly could be one key thing in your arsenal for overcoming the learning crisis or improving outcomes for children. What is that one thing you would want to share with the world?
0: I think a lot of people know about the problems of education in India and they're well understood and uh, the perfect explanation of Uh, that or summarization of that is something that Karthik Muralidharan offered, that we have not an education system, but a filtration system. So, So all the ills of the system are often talked about. But I think what the world is not privy to enough is the incredible ecosystem of innovators in education that is working out of India. If India is a hotbed of all the problems, it's also the Silicon Valley, so to say, of education and innovations in every sector. Whether you talk of education technology, there are, of course, many companies and many organizations working on that. Of course, it's going through a downturn right now. Hopefully, we'll learn something and come back. There are many organizations which are working on improving schools as a whole, both in the private sector and in the not-for-profit sector. Uh, There are organizations which working uh, to improve the the way government as a whole works. Uh, There are all kinds of solutions in India uh, that are being driven by incredible organizations. Just look at our own partner ecosystem. Uh, You know, on on one hand, we have organizations working on large-scale system approaches to, to teaching and learning and literacy and numeracy, we have a whole host of ed tech solutions coming out of India, working in the, in the direct-to-child space. Our affordable private school system has many solutions. We're working on improving that sector. So what I want the world to know is that Yes, India is the hotbed of all the problems, but also the go-to place. If you want to try out new solutions, you want to find an incredible uh, array of social entrepreneurs who are trying to shift the needle.
1: Great. India as a hotbed of all problems, but also all solutions. Anastop, thank you so much for appearing on the Right's podcast. Julius, thank you
0: so much for uh, giving me a space to to air my views. I'm really grateful to Rise. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. And if you liked it, be sure to check out our research at RiseProgram.org or follow us on social media at RiseProgram. You can find links to the research mentioned and other work shared under the description for this podcast episode. The RISE podcast is brought to you by the Research on Improving Systems of Education RISE programme through support from the UK's Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Office, Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade
1: and the Bull and Melinda Gates Foundation.